So I was preparing this week. I came across an interesting little account that took place over 2,000 years ago. Um, I don't know if you're a lover of history, but there's been great empires, uh, Assyrian, Babylonian. One of the great empires were the Greeks. And if you know anything about Greece, it kind of starts up here and then comes down to a point. At that point, at the very bottom, is a city called Sparta. Now, if you're a movie person, you've heard of Sparta and its great warriors and all of that kind of stuff. But the story I came across was about the, one of the kings of Sparta at one special time started to say for everyone who would listen that our city of Sparta has the greatest walls of any city in the world. Our city has the greatest walls of any city in the world. Now, you've got to understand, in those days, city walls were essential if you were to survive, um, especially in the Greeks, because the Greeks had what we call city-states. So Athens had its own little state with its own little army and its own little walls and all of that, and all of them were like that. And he, and he says, my city's walls are better than anybody else's walls. Well, one day he had another king come to visit him, and the king got into the city and was kind of aghast and kind of uh, confused. He says, he says, I don't understand. You claim that you have the greatest walls of any city in the world, but, but uh, we rode up to your city, and <laughs> you have no walls. What are you talking about? You have the greatest walls in the city. And there was literally no walls around Sparta. The king smiled at him, and he said, he says, let me show you our walls. And he took this other king and they, they got on the, and, and, and went out to the other side of the city and, and the other side of the city was a great plain and it was where his soldiers were practicing and marching in incredible precision. Now, I don't know if you remember the soldiers of Sparta, but they were the best. And they had precision and lines and, or, and, and, and all of that. And the king looked out and he says, see those men? Those, those ones are the walls of our city. People are our walls. People together and joined and working together and marching forward together, they're our walls. The reason that struck me is because as we enter the passage this morning, um, Peter has the same kind of thing in mind. Now, if you're visiting with us, we're going through the book of First Peter. This is, this is Peter the fisherman who, who was one of the disciples of Christ and, and he, uh, he literally um, grew up and we walked with him as he moved from this impulsive, reactive to a, a solid leader of the Christian church. As we get to this, this point, Peter is talking to us about a critically important issue. If you understand this week's sermon and the implications of this week's sermon, it will become the, the, the bedrock for where we're going in these next kind of weeks. Now, if you haven't been with us, let me just give you some a review. That we have been looking in chapter one, and chapter one has talked about foundation. I don't know if you've ever done building, but you need a foundation. And, and, and so he starts to, to talk to these Christian Jews who are in, in northern Turkey, and he started to talk to them about part of their salvation 
is safe for them in heaven. So, so there's, no, there's no fear of ever losing your salvation. If you've asked Jesus Christ into your heart and life, there, there's no losing. And, 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 and yet, while you're living in this world, literally what's going to happen is trials are going to come upon you. But they're not coming on you because you're, you're being punished by God. They're coming to be purified like gold is purified by heat and by fire. Then Peter challenges us that, that because we have this incredible salvation, we are to be holy just as our God is holy. Then last week, he shifted it slightly. He started to talk to us about because our salvation is in heaven, because we've had Jesus Christ come into our heart and life, we're changed. Our citizenship has changed. We are strangers in this world, and we are citizens of heaven. This is not our home. Peter, Peter, Peter's really strong on that. This is not our home. We are living in a foreign land. We are like ambassadors that represent our king, and eventually we're going to be going home to him. Now, as you have that to understand, then we move into chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to shift it around a little bit, and you'll see why I do that as, as we go it through. But, but if you're going to understand this passage, i got to give you a little bit of history. Well, you know me. I like the history. In, in the time of, of Israel, um, building and developing, they would build uh, in, in their city uh, great massive structures. And these, these structures were all made of stone. You, you go to Israel and you, just cut, you can't find the wood. And, and although we bought, build everything with wood, they built everything with stone. And, and as we sometimes put in footings and, and then build the frame around them and, and then just keep going up, they did it slightly different. They would level off the land, really level and, and clear, and go as far down to the bedrock as they possibly could. And then in one corner, they would put what we call a cornerstone. Now, this cornerstone uh, is, 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 is a rock that was literally designed in perfection. Over in the quarry, which would sometimes be miles away from, from where they were building, the, the, the various men would come together with their chisels and, and everything, and they'd, they'd cut out, out of, the, out of the pure rock, this incredibly large stone. And, and they, would, they would mark it as the cornerstone. Once it was cut and shaped... It would be brought, and it be shaped as a rectangle, it would be brought all that way to the city, and then it would be placed in the very corner of where they're building. And, and from that, would build, they would build the wall, and the wall would go straight from the cornerstone on one way, and straight from the cornerstone on another way, and it would all line up with the cornerstone. Now, just to understand the, perfect, the, the amazement of this kind of task, the cornerstone in Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem, you go to the Temple Mount. And if you go to the Temple Mount, you'll see it's surrounded by a wall. And on the, on the southeast corner is, is a cornerstone that was put there by Herod. That cornerstone is 39 feet 4 inches long, 39, so almost 50, 40 feet long. It is 8 feet, uh, eight feet wide, and it, it is 43 feet long. It weighs 80 tons. 
Now, I, I don't know how about you. Some of you have big machinery and all of that, or some of you have been on big machinery. Do we have something that would be able to move 80 tons? These people moved it by hand from way over in the quarry, and they would bring it all the way into the city and position it perfectly. It was perfect this way and this way and this way. And everything that was built upon it was lined up to this cornerstone. It was huge. And, and, uh, and when, when we enter this passage, you need to understand that the cornerstone was a critical part of anything. If, if the cornerstone was crooked or, or not straight, literally it would wreck the whole building and it would fall apart. Can you imagine a huge stone wall that starts to come out this way and fall? Or, or I don't know if you've ever seen a brick wall that's kind of crooked all the way through. Well, these people would build. Now, here, here's a legend that came out of Solomon's temple. Do you remember Solomon in the Old Testament was, was commissioned by God to build the first temple? And there's a legend that comes out of it, and this legend is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then s several of the epistles. Here's the le le legend. That a huge stone was built and, and, and in the quarry and was hauled all the way to the city to, to be built in Solomon's temple. But when it got there, no one knew what, where this rock was supposed to go. And, and they didn't know how it was to be fit and all of those kind of things. And, and, and they kept looking at it thinking, well, we don't know what it's for. And, and, and so finally they decided to throw it out. And they threw it out into the garbage heap. Later on, as they were starting to put the stones into place, they started to realize that this rock was the cornerstone. Out of that came a legend that said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, that will be a key passage for you as you enter this, this passage. Because as you and I enter, enter this passage that, that Peter's writing to us, he describes Jesus as that cornerstone. He describes Jesus as the cornerstone which, which, upon which he has built his church, upon he is, what he has built his kingdom. And, and this cornerstone is solid. And, and from this cornerstone, all will come and all will be built. And, and, and as Peter is describing this, you could see the readers that were, were Jewish Christians in the north reading this and saying, oh yeah, I remember, I remember that story about the cornerstone. And, and, and Peter is saying Jesus is the cornerstone. Now this had double meaning for them because if you listen to, to uh, Greg as he read it, th there are two reactions to Jesus being the cornerstone. The first is that there are those who rejected Jesus. They were the religious leaders. They were the political leaders. They, they were the important people. And, and, and li literally Jesus would later say that they... they, they he became a stumbling block for them. I, I grew up in the mountains, as, as, as I've told many of you many, many times, but uh, there, there are times that you'll be climbing a mountain and you'll get to an area that's really gravelly and, and loose rocks and all of that kind of stuff, and you'll step on a rock and literally it will knock you down. You'll, you, it'll slip out from underneath you. And, you and, and Jesus says, you know, for some of those who rejected me, who wouldn't follow me as Lord and Savior, I've become a stumbling block. And the result is that eventually their destruction will take place. 
But, but Peter isn't highly interested in this group. He's saying this is a fact. And if you, if you look at those in our world, there's a lot of people who've let Jesus be a stumbling. Well, what kind of Jesus was him? And he, he could, how do we know he was real? And how do we know he died? And, and how do we know he rose from the dead? And you'll, you'll hear all of these kind of excuses to avoid accepting him for who he is. But then there are those who have chosen him. And this is who Peter wants you and I to focus on for a few minutes this morning. For as he starts to talk, he, he has interesting words he uses. He says, he says, those who have chosen are living stones. And they have chosen to be joined to the living stone. Now that's a really interesting contradiction, isn't it? It's like living stone. Stone, solid, dead, kind of. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You are living stones. You, you, you are dynamic. You, you, you are active. You are moving. You, you, you have this ability to be placed in the wall in this perfect place, but you are living, and you've been joined to the living stone. And you are being built up. Now, that building word is a really important word as, as Peter continues. You've, ex you've been accepted by God. You've been, received mercy. You have come out of the darkness. And, and into, Peter just can't, if you, if you get anything else about Peter by the time we're finished, you're going to hear he can't, he can't say enough about this incredible salvation for those who choose to follow Jesus. But here's the picture. Here's the picture that Peter wants to place in your mind, in your heart today. He wants you to, to, to look at Jesus as the cornerstone and recognize that Jesus describes you as a living stone and, and it's this concept of being joined to him and shaped and perfected into the wall so that, so that every rock that's joined to him has been shaped and perfected and put in place perfectly to build this building. Don't miss what I just said. God chose you, that's what he said earlier, before the foundation of the earth. God, God looked forward to you and, and he, he drew you into, into his, his, his shop and he has been shaping you and perfecting you and designing you to be fitted into this spiritual house is one of the phrases being used. Another, another phrase that you can, you can gather from the New Testament teaching is this is a temple of God, where, where God is the cornerstone, and this temple has been built, and each of you and, and myself have been joined, and we have been created this wall and this building, and, it, and, and we have create, been, been made into a part of the temple of the living God. So you are shaped to fit with me. And I am shaped to fit with you. Stone, living stone, after 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 living stone. And everyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior becomes part of this living stone. Now, I, I've been thinking a lot about that today. Because why would Peter want to give us this picture? Now, yes, there was the Old Testament legend and all. What, what's he trying to communicate? Well, I think he's trying to answer a question that the, the, the Christians back there were trying to understand. If, if, if you said in chapter 1, Peter, that, 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 that our salvation is, is in heaven secure and safe, 
if you, if you talk about how the moment we ask Jesus Christ into our life, that, that we are literally um, part of God's family. He has adopted us. He has named us. He has given us his name, and he has brought us into his, his, his family, and he has a place for us in his home, and, and he has made us citizens of heaven. And if that's our home, why would you want us here? Peter's trying to communicate that we are here for a season to be built into a house of God. Let's use the word church. Let's a spiritual temple. In the midst of a pagan world that doesn't know anything about you and, and, and doesn't believe in you, and as they see this beautiful building being built up, they will start to say, so, so what goes on there? And, and, and who are those people? And, and, and look at how close and tight they're together. If you, if you go to Jerusalem, the fascinating thing is to go to the Temple Mount. And, and, and some of you have been there. You can visualize it in your head. Temple Mount has these huge walls around it. And, and, and these walls, tons. There, there, are, there, are, there are some that are 80 tons. There are some 140 tons. And yet you cannot put a piece of paper between the two. It's so precisely, so perfectly made. These, these, these craftsmen had this incredible ability of doing that. And, and so, so people will look and say, well, look at how they fit together. Look at how, how, how they work together and stand together and believe together and trust God together and put their hope in God together. All of those, look at, look at how they are together. guess the question I asked was, are we? A couple years ago, we uh, were doing renovations in our house. It was time to change this, and it was time to change that. You know, you know how things get old or whatever, you want them changed. And, and it was interesting because uh, the, the, the people that came in to do that, they were, some were putting in flooring and some were putting in, in tile and some were putting in lino and all kinds of different things. Uh, we, we put in new counters and all, just a whole bunch of different things. They would bring this laser level in. Kind of fascinated me. They'd put it and they'd make sure everything was aligned, everything perfectly. We, we had lino put in, or uh, laminate, laminate, laminate put in, and, and, and it needed to be fitted, in, and it had to be straight when you started. So you got the laser out, and you started to look at that, and, and I was kind of fascinated how it was. We, we, we put the tile in, and same thing. We put the lino in, and the guy was still using the same kind of thing, and I started to realize it had to be perfectly straight to fit in. Started to think about that in terms of my life in my journey with Jesus. Am I aligned with him? Is, is my life so shaped so that, 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 that you look at him and look at me and, and you can't barely see the crack between us because we're, we're so fitted together, but also we are so following his alignment, his straightness. Are you aligned with Jesus? I see some Christians and they seem kind of crooked. They, they, they want to believe in Jesus. They want to rest in Jesus, but they, they kind of don't want to do what he kind of wants them to do. 
Are, are you allowing his truth to shape you? One of the things that struck me when I was in Israel is, 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 is how much chiseling those guys must do to keep this, these things. How many things they have to knock off this, this huge block so it'll be straight and perfect and lined. And I wondered, how do I do that in my life, in my journey? <laughs> A couple years ago, I, I, uh, I, I was watching one of these little things that were happening in the Christian culture. Do you remember them? They, they used to have this little rubber band, and it would go around your wrist, and on it would say, what would Jesus do? Do you know what that's, that was doing? It was seeking to help kids align with Jesus. And then adults start to wear, wear the same thing. What would Jesus do? That's saying, Jesus, this is your line. How, how do I live with that truth? Now, Peter is very aware that there are things that need to be taken off of our life and things that need to be put into our life. And so even as we start the chapter, I don't know if you heard Greg say it, but the, the first thing Peter starts to do is starts to say, there's some things, folks, that really need to be chiseled out of your life. He says, get rid of. Now, the Greek word he uses is, is if someone has this black, dirty cloak on, and, and this get rid of literally means take it off and throw it away. Peter starts naming things. I find it really interesting what he named. Because if I look at this list, it's like, oh, Lord, that's not in the church. Come on. Really? He starts with malice. Malice is hate toward another brother in Christ, another sister in Christ. It's like, I just don't like them, and, and I'm going to do things that will cause them pain. Second one is deceit. Deceit is I am going to lie to you. I am going to deceive you. I am going to tell you things that are not true, and, and I'm going to do it in such a way that you will believe me as if they're true. Hypocrisy. That, that's a Greek word. It comes out of the drama, the play. Uh, if you look at all the ancient uh, Greek dramas, they would have a mask and, and it would, there would be different expressions on that mask, but some of them would be a smiling face or some would be a sad face. But the face that was there was not truly the face inside the mask. You ever met a Christian who says they're this way, but really they're another way? Envy. Jealous for what another has. Well, why is God allowing them to have that, not me? Slander, gossip, to speak words against another. And, and, and Peter's looking at these Christians saying, I, I want you to take off these kind of things. Now, I was, I was looking at this list, and it struck me, these are all relational words. These are all words about how one person deals with another person. And, and Peter says, I, I, want you to, I want you to take that off. I don't want any malice between you. I want love. That, that's what the scripture talks about. I don't want any deceit between you. I want truth. I, I, I don't want you to have this hypocritical face of, of, of pretending you're someone, but really you're someone else. I, I want to know the true you. I don't want you to envy or be jealous about what another has. Because with every gift comes a burden. And I don't want you to Bad, bad mouth or speak against a brother or sister in Christ. Peter says, 
Those are chips. I, I, want you to, I want you to knock those off. I want, you to get, I want you to smooth out your life in this area. And then he flips and he says, but this is what I want you to change. This is what I want you to put into your life. It's interesting that what he says. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Now, I don't know how many of you have had a baby in your life. Do you remember when it was that time to give that baby a bottle? There was no, well, I don't know, Dad. What kind of milk is it? Is it chocolate milk this time? Or can I, I just get the white stuff? And, and, and the babies don't, oh, yes, I want to drink it, I want to drink it, I want to drink it. And, 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 and Peter's saying, I, I want you to have this thirst, this longing, th th this desire to take in what? Spiritual milk. What's well, spiritual milk? It's the word of God. I, I want you to have a longing in your life so that you will grow up in your salvation. Remember we talked about that when we looked at chapter 1, that, that you would mature in your faith, that you would move from infancy and to, to maturity and adulthood in your spiritual walk. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you have a thirst for God's truth? Do you have a thirst for God's love? His word? Sometimes as a pastor, I want, to take a, I, want to, I want you to come through the doors and I want to give you a test and I want to say, okay, I want you to mark off, did, did, you, have your, did you open your Bible today and did you have your devotions today? Check. What, did you have do, do devotions every day this week? Check. Maybe check. Not seven, but twice. What, what about... This longing for his truth, for his understanding. Are you reading? Are you eating the, the word? Are you, are you dwelling on it? Are, are, you, are you consuming it? Are, 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 is it changing you and shaping you? He's saying, I want you to put this off, but this truth of God, I want you to put into your heart and life. I grew up in the era of Bible smugglers. I don't know if you were in that era, but the Bible smugglers was when Russia was communist and it was illegal to, to, to have Bibles in Russia. And so there's a whole mission, God's Bible smugglers, who literally would, would pack their cars full of Bibles and in some obscure border crossing in Russia would drive into Russia and then they'd find a place and they would pass them out to every Christian who, 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 who they could find. Now this was illegal. This was against the law. And, and, yet, and yet they recognized the incredible need of these people to have a Bible. Do you have that hunger? Do you have that longing? A creative uh, radio ministry started seeing the need of that and said, well, what should we do? What can we do as a radio station? And they, they set up their, their tall towers and everything and started bombarding Russia and the Communist Party of China, and they would bombard it with Scripture. So what they would do is they would have a radio announcer have his Bible open, and then he would slowly read one verse. And then he would read it again. And then he would read it again. And then he would read it again. Until he had done that repeatedly, and they, the people on the other, hand, other end had had a piece of paper and a pen, and, and carefully and gently wrote the whole 
verse and then the whole chapter and then the whole book of a Bible because they couldn't get it any other way. Do you have that longing for God's word? Put off, put in. Take off that which isn't straight. Smooth out the rough edges. Take in and make yourself solid with the word of God so that you're mature and strong, so that you are part of the house of God, the building of God. Now here's what's interesting. Peter now shifts. He changes the picture slightly. And he starts talking to these people about the, the fact that they are going to be ministers of God. Second Peter chapter 5 says this, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Well, we got that far. And then he says to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so God is building this house on this earth so that the world can see who Jesus is. He's building it with him being the cornerstone and, and us being the walls and the roof and all of those kind of parts. We are stones built together and we're fitted together and we're working together and we're ministering together and we're loving together and we're growing together. And he says, but I'm going to put into that temple you again as a holy priesthood. Now, this is actually kind of fascinating if you've done study throughout the Old and New Testament. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, a, a prophecy is given in Exodus chapter 9, verse 6. That's really kind of fascinating. And, and, and God is speaking not to you and I, but to Israel. And he's speaking over the Israel, Israel peop, Israeli people. And he's saying this, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, as you dig deeper into that, he is saying all of Israel will become the priesthood for all the world. They will become the individuals who have been called to minister on behalf of God. Now, let me, let me define priesthood because many Christians don't understand what it means to be a priest. A priest has two roles. He functions in two directions. The first direction is he ministers to God through his sacrifice, through his worship, through his praise. If you went into the temple when Jesus was there, there would be a whole group of, of priests and all they would do is, 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 is burn the sacrifices, the lambs that were brought in. They would burn incense. They would bring bread in. They, they would do all of those kind of things. And their whole purpose was to give God glory and honor. And then the second role would be to minister to the people. Now, this worship would not just be worship. It would be a second thing. They would be intercessors for the people. They would bring the needs and the longings and the struggles and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, all of those things to the Lord. Now, I hope you're not missing what I'm talking about because we have been called to do the same. We have been called as living sacrifices, it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And we have, we have been called to be worshipers. And if you notice our church, we have an interesting pattern. Some of the other churches, and this isn't to put them down at all, have lots of things going on Sunday morning. 
We, we, need, to, we need to have the song thing, and, and then we need to do the offering, of course, and then we need a children's moments, and then we need a missionary moment, and then we need scriptures, and sometimes we need scriptures from the Old Testament and the New Testament and the, the epistles, and, 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 and then there's the sermon, and, well, and then there's announcements, of course. By the time you're finished, it's like there's so many things going on. If you've watched our service, we have pared it down to two things. We sing and we preach. Worship and word. Now we do some other things once in a while. But it's mostly worship and word. Worship. And prayer. And praise. For we serve the true living God. And we have been called to be his priests. On the other hand, he also calls us to be priests of this world. That, that we represent God. We represent Jesus Christ. And so when you talk to your neighbor or you talk to someone in a store, or, or you talk to someone at your school, or, or you talk to someone it, it, just on the trails. You represent Jesus with your attitudes and your words and your actions. Now, I've had, I don't know if it's the misfortune or fortune to be a preacher. You should just watch people when they find out I'm a preacher. I can be, I can be sitting with some guys that have never met me before, and, and, and they, we'll, we'll be talking and joking and all of that stuff, and, and then someone will say, so what do you do? Oh, I'm a Baptist minister. You should see them become saints instantly. Their language changes, their face changes, all of those kind of things. It's like, sorry, pastor. I... To, to put myself through uh, college so that I could become a minister, I worked in a coal mine. I know this will be a surprise to you, but some of the language in the coal mine wasn't the best of the best. And you should have just watched some of these guys when, when they suddenly, what are, you, what are you going to school for? Oh, I want to be a minister. What? And suddenly, and, and they would have, like one guy thought he'd, he was really funny. He thought, well, I'm not going to call you preacher. I'll call you rabbi. Oh, well, thank you. I don't know what that means. But, but, but you, you'll see all these people. Do, and, and, and the reality is, I represented him, not me. Do you represent him? But watch what happens. Israel is given this calling. And by the way, look at the passage. It doesn't say the men are going to be priests. It says the nation will be men, women, children. And then the golden calf happens. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's, he's getting the Ten Commandments from God, and the people think he's dead, so they start building this golden calf, and, and they, they violate everything. When he comes down, 
Moses comes down. He calls for the righteous. And a, and a tribe called the Levites come forward and, and support him. And the, and the golden calf is destroyed and the worshipers are destroyed. And, and, and God says to these Levites, because of what you did today, I'll let you be the priest for now. But it was temporary. It was temporary. And they would be the priests and they would be the servants in the temple and the tabernacle and they would serve God and they would be what we're talking about. And then in Isaiah 61, we get this prophecy. In Isaiah 61, he says, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. This prophecy is coming forward. And then in Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he calls us, don't miss this word, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. L later on, it's, it repeats itself in Revelations, to whom you love us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be the kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. So, so get this. Israel was to be the priesthood. They sinned. God says, okay, we're putting that on hold. And now this new group called the church are set out to be what Peter will call a royal priesthood. Now those words are great. King's kids who serve as priests. King's kids who are ministers of Jesus Christ. And Peter in this passage, in verse 9, says this amazing phrase. And you, I, well, you know me, I could preach about it forever, this one. You are a chosen people. That's what he's been calling the Jews for hundreds of years. You are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood, we've never heard that phrase before. You are a holy nation. Again, a Jewish phrase. You are a people belonging to God. Again, a Jewish phrase. That you would, might declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into this wonderful light. So God is putting them apart and saying, all who believe in Jesus Christ are chosen. Do you feel chosen? Know that you're chosen? Do you know God, the Bible says from the beginning of time, looked down at this time, at this place and said, I know you and I love you and I have chosen to bring you into my family calls us a holy nation. Holy means set apart. So we've, we've been chosen, we've been set apart. We, are, we belong to God himself. We, we are owned by him. But then there's this phrase, royal priesthood, that I am a king's kid who's sent to this world to be part of his holy temple and a servant, a minister of Jesus Christ in his temple. Wow. Wow. I, re I read a number of years ago uh, about a professional artist. He was a painter, oil painter. Did spectacular scenes, canvas scenes. He would go out into the mountains and he would paint it and he would bring it back and it just, it just jumped out at you with its, 
its color and its shaping and its texture and all of that. And people would just say, wow, how do you do that? He says, well, I, I do this and I do that. And, 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 and someone says, yeah, but the colors are so real. How do you get those colors to be so real? He says, oh, well, that's a little trick I learned a long time ago. And, and he pulls out of his pocket a little container, and in that container are three jewels. One sapphire, which was blue, one an emerald, which was green, and one a ruby, which was red. He says, I take this with me wherever I go. He says, he says sometimes when you're painting a scene, they'll become blurred. Like, like sometimes you've watched the mountains and you'll see the, 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 the green of the trees kind of blur together. And it's like, is that dark or is that light? And he says, I would take this and I would hold it up and that would bring me back to what's the true color and then I would paint. Thought a lot about that picture. God said, I want to give you this. And as you're walking through life, as a royal priesthood, ministering on my behalf with my people in this world that is lost, I want you to hold this up once in a while when it gets fuzzy and gray. When it becomes dark and unclear. For this will show you the truth. This morning, I want to leave this picture with you. It will become essential as you and I walk through these, these next chapters. Because he now jumps into practical. Next, next week, he starts talking about your relationship with the government. Then he'll talk about your relationship as husbands, as wives, as slaves, translated employees. But he does it after he has set this picture in place. That in this world, he is our cornerstone, and we are built to him with each other, and we are ministers, a royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. That has to be seen before we start interpreting all the rest of those things. Because if, if we don't see who we are and who he is and why we've been called here, we will turn these rest of these things into psychology. Well, this is what a good employee does. This is what a good hus husband does, a wife. I want to talk about you being ministers in those places. I want to invite you back next week. Well, you'll have to come and see. Would you bow in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, you are our cornerstone. Our faith is built on you. I pray that as we align our life to your truth, align our life to who you are and the direction you have sent us that we would see that we have purpose and meaning. I would ask that you would allow us to see the mantle of priesthood on each of us. That we have been called to be ministers of God representing him 
to a broken, empty world. That we are to bring light into darkness and hope into hopelessness and peace into turmoil. But not because of our abilities or who we are, because of who we represent. Let us build this kingdom here so that when the world sees the church being built up, they would ask the question, why? And we would be there to give them the answer. I would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.